The essential uh, message of Christianity, switching gears, is the message of sin and grace. Sin is the problem and grace is the solution. Sin is the disease and God's grace in Christ is the remedy. So if we are to understand Christianity at all, we must understand both sin and grace. And here's what I've learned in my time of following Jesus in a post-Christian world. Though we still use the word sin and grace, we've lost the sense of what those words mean. In today's world, the idea of sin has largely been replaced with the idea of sickness. And the idea of grace has largely been replaced with self-help, self-advancement, or self effort. And so we may use the words sin and grace today, but we've lost a sense of what they really mean. The same problem existed in the 16th century at the dawn of the Reformation. People had the words sin and grace in their vocabulary. They used those words, but they lost a sense of what those words meant. And as a result, they lost a sense of the power of the beauty and the drama of the gospel, which is one of the, why one of the rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation became sola gratia, grace alone, grace alone. What is it? What does that mean and why does that matter? Those are the questions that I want to answer this morning. So if you have your Bible or your Bible reading app, smartphone, iPad, or you can follow along on the screens, and I have the verses in the handout printed out as well, so you can check that out. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. You'll find Ephesians towards the middle of the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible. And as you're turning there, let me win you over with why grace alone is not just an important historical phrase, but why it has great significance for our lives today. Have you ever met a Christian who seemed to walk through life with a little bit of swagger, who seemed kind of smug, maybe a little self-righteous. They thought they were all of that in a bag of chips. I don't look at that person this morning. There are a lot of eyes up here, so maybe I need to reflect on my own life. But doesn't it strike you like something is wrong with them? Like there's something that's not quite right. How can you be a Christian and be self-righteous? Or maybe you've met a Christian who seems like their life has not been changed by the gospel that they say they believe. They claim to be saved by Jesus Christ, but they show no real difference in their attitudes and actions. Doesn't something strike you as not quite right about that, too? Or have you ever met a Christian who seemed to be living in spiritual dryness, who know all about the grace and mercy of God, but those truths don't seem fresh alive, real, and vibrant in their souls. Their Christian life lacks vitality, joy, and energy. I imagine your answer to all three of these questions is yes. Yes, I know people like that. Maybe I am a person like that. Well, I want to suggest to you that all three of these ailments have a common thread, a common root. When Christians are smug and self-righteous, when they're not experiencing change, or when they, they lack a sense of joy and vitality, the solution is 
Grace alone. Here's the simple truth I want to focus on this morning. Grace alone can change us. Grace alone can change us, and that is good news for every one of us, no matter who we are and no matter where we're at in life. So let's look at the scriptures together. I want to give you a little bit bit of a background on Ephesians before we do that. I want to encourage you, if you have some time on your own, I know there's a lot of resolutions happening right now, I want to encourage you to study through the book of Ephesians. It's a great gift to us. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus and the surrounding region in 62 AD, while he was imprisoned in Rome, you can check out Acts 28 for that, and during this time, he also wrote Colossians and Philemon. The book of Ephesians is full of the gospel from start to finish. In fact, there may be no other book in all the Bible that packs as much gospel per square inch, except maybe the book of Romans. The first half of the book is almost nothing but gospel explanation, while the second half is almost entirely gospel application. Mind-boggling expressions followed by grace-filled and grace-motivated commands. The good news of the first three chapters center on the word blessing. Specifically, all the blessings we have by virtue of union with Jesus. We were chosen in him. We were adopted in him. We have redemption in him. We have our inheritance in him. And in Christ, God is bringing the entire universe to its fulfillment. Paul goes on to explain that in Christ, God is exercising his mighty power for us who believe. In him, we who were created for good works for us to do, and we were dead in our trespasses, have been made alive with Christ. In him, we who were far away have been brought near. In him, longtime enemies can come together in peace. In him, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. All of this is ours in Christ Jesus, which is why Paul prays twice that we may know Christ more and more. In him, we find a love that is wide, long, high, and deep. A love that will surprise and a love that surpasses knowledge. The glorious gospel in the first half of the book does not fade to the background in the second half. Instead, we see that the good news of chapters 1 through 3 makes possible, natural, and desirable the good commands of chapters 4 through 6. Therefore, as God's beloved ones, we put off falsehood, unrighteous anger, stealing, unwholesome talk, and bitterness. We put on truth-telling, righteous anger, hard work, edifying conversation, and compassion. Out of love for Christ, wives submit to their husbands. Children honor their parents, and bondservants obey their masters. Husbands lay down their lives for their wives. Fathers instruct their children in the Lord. And masters deal kindly with their servants. Taking our stand on the love of Christ, we stand our ground against the devil and resist the schemes of the evil one. In Christ, we have become holy. And in Christ, we can grow in holiness. The message of Ephesians is that when we embrace the love of Christ, we also embrace the way of life that Christ loves. So here we go. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And remember, why this text exists is to help us clearly define both sin and grace. So let's dive in. It begins this way, and you were dead. Great news, right? Stop there and let that sink in a little bit. So I drive around a lot. In fact, I drove down to visit my parents, visit family and friends, and every time I drive somewhere, it never fails that I see some roadkill on the side of the road. Kind of a bummer deal, you know, oh man, don't like to see that. But never have I been worried that that roadkill is going to come back to life and run in front of my car because they're dead. The only way that roadkill is moved is if someone picks up the dead carcass to remove it, or an animal drags it off somewhere to eat it. The roadkill has no life in itself, no power, no ability. Likewise, Ephesians 2 is saying, you were dead. Who's the you? Well, as we'll see later, the you that this passage is talking about is those who have been changed by grace alone. And to see how grace alone can change us, we have to dial back the clock a little bit. We have to go back in time and understand what was true of us before grace. So here's where all of us start out. You were dead. And notice it goes on to say, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So in one sense, you were very much alive, you're walking, you're engaging in life, and in verse 3 it says, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. So here's what scripture is saying here. You were physically alive, but spiritually you were dead. The text here is teaching the classic doctrine called total depravity, which does not mean, by the way, that you're as bad as you possibly could be. Thanks, thanks to God for that, right? Total depravity means every part of you is corrupted and distorted by sin. Your mind, your will, your inclinations, your desires, your longings, they're all jacked up by sin. And as a result, you are completely unable to move toward God. Look at the end of verse 3. By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So here's the age-old question, is it, Nature or nurture that makes us do bad things? To that question, the Bible's answer is yes. You are sinful by nature and by choice. You have a fallen, corrupted nature, and you live in a fallen, corrupted world. In other words, who you are is the problem. Put that on a coffee mug and bumper sticker, right? You don't just need a new set of rules or a new moral code or a new start in life. You need a new nature. You need a radical renovation of the core of your very being. If you were to summarize the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, we would say it this way. You were dead in sin. This must be understood or nothing good can come from the gospel I'm going to relate to you this morning. In other words, unless you realize the reality of your sin and deadness before God, the good news of the gospel won't be good news at all. There's no problem with me. Why do I need a Savior? 
What do I need a solution? Now, verse 4 begins with two of the most dramatic, important, hope-filled words in the entire Bible. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. So notice who is the actor and who is the acted upon. God made us alive, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So how does someone go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive? God made us alive. And then notice the very next phrase, by grace you have been saved. In other words, scriptures are telling us this is what grace is. You were dead and God made you alive. That's what grace is. Notice the connection by being saved and being made alive. Being saved is not merely about going to heaven when you die. Being saved is about being brought to life. It's about God and his mercy and his love reaching down into your dead, lifeless soul and imparting life. God loves the loveless, gives life to the lifeless, and is merciful to those deserving no mercy. And notice the Bible has gone out of its way to emphasize you did nothing. You contributed nothing. You were dead, remember? You didn't seek, you didn't pursue, you didn't reach out to God in hopes that he would reach out to you. God took the initiative. God made you alive. Ephesians chapter 2 is teaching divine monergism. Mono means one, ergos means work. Monergism means one worker, one agent, one cause. The Bible teaches if you are a Christian, you've been brought from death to life spiritually. That happened because God did it. The opposite of monergism is synergism. Synergism means God and I work together. We meet halfway. I do my part. God does his part. And let's be honest, that's a much more flattering way of thinking, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to admit that I'm in a helpless sinner dead in my trespasses and utterly dependent on the mercy of God. I'd much rather believe that I'm a good person who's made some bad choices in life and just needs a little bit of a loving shove to get back on the right track, right? And that's why the Reformers rallied around the phrase sola gratia, grace alone, because they wanted to emphasize God's grace is monergistic. Grace is God acting sovereignly on the human soul to impart spiritual life. But don't miss this. Knowing about grace is not what changes us. What changes us is grace. Having a good theology of grace is not what changes us. What changes us is grace. This passage goes on to teach that by grace, a Christian is brought to union with Christ. That's the key. That's what grace does. It unites us to Jesus. Listen, I'm going to read the middle of this passage again. Listen to how many times it says being with Christ or in Christ. Starting in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love 
which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raises us up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Why does grace alone change us? Because what God does when he saves us by grace is to unite us to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're alive with Christ. You're raised with Christ. You're seated with Christ. You're a recipient of God's kindness in Christ. You're created to do good works in Christ. Listen to the great reformer, John Calvin. We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, all that he has suffered and done for salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. See, grace means Christ does not remain outside of you. Christ comes to dwell within you. Listen to what Rankin Wilburn says about union with Christ. This is what he says. During his earthly life, Jesus' presence was localized to his physical body. He experienced our frustration by being in one place at one time. But Christ Jesus now dwells within his followers. Christ's power and life enter into our life and transform us. That is why grace alone can change us. Because grace unites us to Jesus Christ. By grace, when you were dead, God made you alive with Christ. And now Jesus dwells within you, transforming you and changing you from the inside out. I want you to think about how amazing it is to be united with the living Jesus. All his beauty and loveliness is yours. All his power and strength is yours. All his courage and conviction is yours. Everything that represents Christ now becomes yours because you are united with him. That's the beauty, the power of grace alone. Now we come to the end of this passage, to this wonderful summary of the entire argument in verses 8, 9, and 10. Listen carefully. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It doesn't get any simpler than that. You're saved by grace. Grace is what does the saving. Through faith. Faith is what takes hold of that salvation give you an example. A lot of you guys are sick. Um, bummer, right? A lot of stuff is going around. If you're sick, you go to the doctor, and the doctor prescribes a medicine of sort. You're healed by the medicine itself through the ingesting of the medicine. Maybe if you're a child, you don't like to ingest it. I think adults don't even like medicine that much, but it helps, right? In other words, the power to heal is in the medicine. Taking the medicine is the act of faith that you're trusting the medicine to do its work. 
By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This word gift here relates to the entire phrase that comes before it. The grace, the salvation, the faith. It's all the gift of God. Listen to me this morning. It's not your own doing. You are not saved because of what you did. You're saved because of what God did. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So here we are introduced to one of the key contrasts in the entire New Testament. The contrast between grace and works. The opposite of salvation by grace is salvation by works. I'm saved by my works, by my effort, by my doing. And notice how clearly the scriptures speak here. You are saved by grace, not by your own doing, not by your works, so that no one may boast. So let's go back to that problem, some of the problems we raised in the beginning of the sermon. Started out acknowledging there are some Christians who walk through life with a little bit of swagger. They have a sense of self-righteousness, superiority about themselves. To say it another way, they are boastful. They are prideful. And the text here says that grace alone destroys that. Destroys that. If you have any sense of superiority to another person, any sense of pride in the fact that you're a Christian, any sense of self-righteousness in comparison to someone else, you have missed the point. You're saved by grace through faith. Not your own doing, so what possibly do you have to brag about? Grace alone changes us into humble, grateful people and thankful people. Not self-righteous people who feel better than themselves and other people. Second problem that we raised in the beginning of the sermon, sermon was Christians who don't walk the talk, right? They profess of faith, but their life shows no obedience to Jesus. And notice, grace alone destroys that as well. Grace alone dismantles that. Check out verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So grace unites us with Jesus, and what that means is a real experience of grace always produces change. You know why? Because Jesus dwells within us, and he changes people. Jesus delights in pleasing the Father. Jesus delights in walking in the truth. He does not leave you where you were. He pulls you into a life of good works. If you meet a Christian whose life is not changed whatsoever, whose life bears no resemblance to the life of Jesus, then you have likely met a Christian who knows about grace, but has not experienced it. Now hear me, though. Disclaimer, if you know me, I'm not perfect. No Christian life bears a perfect resemblance of Jesus. But every Christian's life bears some resemblance to Jesus. Grace alone changes us into Christ-like, obedient people who walk in good works to please our Father because Jesus himself is at work within us changing us and transforming us. And it's a process over our entire lives, so we never arrive, right? 
The final problem we raised at the beginning of the sermon was the problem of Christians living in spiritual dryness. In other words, they know about the grace of God, but those truths don't seem real fresh in a life. I've experienced all of these things, so if you're feeling bad about yourself this morning, I'm there with you. But this one is my experience more often than not. This is my reality. Here I am preaching a sermon about grace, and I deeply believe the truths of Ephesians chapter 2 that's being talked about. But so often in my own life, those truths don't seem real fresh and alive. They fail to move me the way that they should. And so for all of you who are like me, I want to go back into chapter 1 of Ephesians and to remind you why the Apostle Paul is writing these things down. Why he's explaining us the beauty and the reality of grace alone. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 16, if you have your Bibles, this is what it says. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the measurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Why is the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing to us about the grace of God? So that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we might see what we've already seen, so that we might know more fully what we already know. The words of the poet E.E. Cummings, Now the ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are open. Even if we know about grace, we need to rediscover it. We need to be reawakened to its beauty and its glory. This is why the Protestant reformers emphasize the centrality of preaching the Word of God. Because the Word of God, expounded by a preacher and illumined by the Spirit, awakens our hearts again to the majesty of grace alone. Our affections are rekindled and our souls are renewed. So why do we hold so tightly and so joyfully to the doctrine of grace alone? Quite simply because grace alone can change us. Grace meets us when we are dead in sin. Grace unites us with Jesus. Grace kills bragging, boasting. Grace makes us desire to do good works. Grace opens our eyes and our hearts to the hope that we have in Jesus. So friends, let's preach grace alone. Let's sing grace alone. Let's rest in grace alone. Let's glory in grace alone. Let's be changed by grace alone. May we experience the grace upon grace that is found in Christ.